This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, July the 25th, 2022. It's time to take back control of the NHS. Let me tell you what will happen if the government introduces a small fee to see your GP. 20% of you having to perform your own surgery. Having to spend 10% of your weekly income to see a medic. Half of Britain, 33 million people, unable to get an appointment, most of them because they cannot find NHS practice and the rest unable to afford it. You might think this is a doom-laden scenario designed to keep the cult of the socialist NHS alive. It isn't. These are the findings of the latest survey into NHS dental treatment in the UK and it's what we can expect to see soon with doctors if we don't stop it. The definition of crisis is a time of intense difficulty or danger. In the NHS they used to come at the end of a bad winter then it was every winter, then it was happening in waves all year because of Covid, and now it's just every day. When you go to work and it's a crisis, you deal with crises for the whole shift, and when you go home it's still a crisis. It's hardly surprising there are 100,000 job vacancies in the NHS. But that's only a guess, because so many trusts can't afford to pay the full complement of staff, they don't bother to advertise all the posts available. Imagine a school that was two teachers down but couldn't afford them anyway. Think of a government that was missing an ethics advisor, or an army that couldn't find enough soldiers. Oh wait, you don't need to imagine that. That's already happening too. When the NHS was founded, it cost 3.9% of our GDP, and the average life expectancy was a little over 64. Under the next few Tory governments, it went down to 2.9%, but because it saved lives, our life expectancy rose to 71. In the 1970s, it went up to 4.5%, and people could expect to live until the age of 73. Under Thatcher, spending dropped to 3.9% again, and under Major, it rose again to a high of 4.6% of GDP. But it was still saving lives, and our life expectancy hit 76. Under Blair and Brown, health spending hit an unprecedented high of 7.5%. In August 2007, a mere 3,669 outpatients were waiting more than 11 weeks to see a doctor, and 223,085 people were waiting to be admitted as inpatients. Today, the number waiting is 6.6 million. The outgoing Prime Minister promised 40 new hospitals and 50,000 more nurses. The government claims to have found 27,000 new nurses, which are merely replacing some but not all of those who leave. Of the trusts listed as having building projects, only three are new hospitals. Of the two candidates to replace him... One has previously told the NHS to fund its own pay rises from existing budgets, which has cost billions, and the other is promising to axe the 1.25% national insurance hike which was supposed to clear the backlogs. Neither is even suggesting saving the NHS, of nursing the nurses back to health for the sake of our own. What is being suggested is an £8 fee to see your GP, which is the sort of thing often suggested by someone who's never been short of eight quid but it's 10% of the weekly universal credit payment. And the simple fact of the matter is that if it comes in, the poorest will die. They won't see the GP for an ache or a pain. They won't go when there's just a little bit of blood in their poo. They'll wait until it's critical. They'll be rushed to A&E. And for many, it will be too late. Even those who survive will cost more and require more intervention than if they'd got help sooner. Oh, and you're more likely to get ill if you're poor, as well as more likely to get poor when you're ill. The more help you need, the less likely it is you'll get it. 
That horrid fact is why your forebears died in their thousands. It's why pandemics destroy poorer populations, and even today COVID took the poorest. It's why the NHS was founded, and it's why, after a decade of real-terms budget cuts and the sort of political mismanagement which makes the horrors of colonialism look like the thoughtful efforts of a socialist collective, life expectancy has stalled. We now spend about £170 billion a year on health, but only £136 billion of that goes to NHS England. The rest goes on public health, social care and training. Despite those in power telling you it's getting more expensive, that's just 4.2% of our GDP, the same we were spending in 1991. That the NHS still functions at all on that sort of money is astonishing, and it's only because it does that many of those reading these words, or listening, are alive today. It's the only reason I'm able to write them. We are older but no wiser than we were 30 years ago because the best way to become Prime Minister is still to promise to cut taxes, cut spending and blame all our problems on bloated public services. In truth, they've been skinned to the bone in every part of the public sector. The electorate has been lied to and the electorate has been stupid. Luckily for all of us, there is a simple three-word slogan which gets across the right message very simply. It's time to take back control. Take back the NHS from the incompetents and overprivileged who don't see the point or facility of it. Take back control of our borders from the lunatics who demanded Brexit, negotiated passport controls in Dover and demanded a stamp to go in each direction and are now gnashing their teeth at the fact the French are sticking to the agreement we wrote. Take back the schools from the wreckers, the budgets from the cutters, the country from the rotters who have their snouts in the trough and multiple directorships in their trotters. If we want a country that runs well, it must be run by people who are well. Realists, not economic ideologues. Those who know what it is to struggle and fail and pick yourself up again. Not people who have more money and ambition and less sense than Elon Musk's next baby mama. If they cut your taxes, you'll pay with your lives. Let's take back control from the toddlers and give our attention to the NHS instead. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Friday, July the 29th, 2022. Liz and Rishi are neighbours, just like Scott and Charlene. Will they or won't they? The Tory leadership race has a love-hate relationship at its centre. They love power and they hate admitting it. The battle to live in number 10 Downing Street is all about what you want, dear voter. Would you like lower taxes I can offer you a good rate on long-term debt repayments, which someone else will sign up for, but you have to repay. Or how about a northern leg for HS2, which some awful government axed uh, in November? The suspension of disbelief needed to take Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak seriously is roughly the same as that you'd need to look at Charlene Mitchell's face 35 years after she walked down the aisle and think, oh, she's aged well. In fact, the competition to be Prime Minister makes a lot more sense if you simply move it to Coronation Street, Ramsey Street or Albert Square. Once you make that leap, it seems perfectly feasible that Liz Truss had a lovely childhood in a wealthy suburb with a good school from where she went to Oxford and later spent 10 years in government, only to receive a knock on the head in a shocking swing ball incident which made her forget who was in power during the 1980s. 
And that's why she now acts like she was raised in the gritty streets of a communist block East End and had to fight other children for stale bread and the right to sleep under the least rainy railway arch. And when Rishi Sunak declared last night that he's the most northern chancellor that this party has had for something like 70 odd years, he did so in a cut glass Hampshire accent. And for the same reason that Ken Barlow has spent his entire life in Weatherfield without ever once sounding like Liam Gallagher. Being Northern is all in the acting, love. The scriptwriters have long forgotten Lizzie's extramarital affair that once rocked her Southwest Norfolk constituency association, and they've glossed over the fact Rishi's wife had to apply for non-dom status and allowed him to keep pretending it was an inevitable consequence of her being born somewhere else. But while Liz and Rishi are tearing chunks out of each other and the government they were part of, there is one inevitable plotline we are moving towards – the day when these two will kiss and make up. It may seem as likely as Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy liking each other's holiday snaps on Instagram, but it has to happen. Because whichever of them wins the ratings battle, they embody two different wings of the Conservative Party. Whoever rules will have to include the other in their government. They're in the same position as Helen Daniels, who never did cut conniving grandson Paul Robinson out of her will and also never convinced him to behave a bit nicer. If Liz becomes PM, she couldn't make Rishi Chancellor again, having spent the entire summer calling in the most expensive mistake the Tories ever made. But having been Chancellor, he could never accept a less important role. That'd be like Ian Beale taking a job sweeping the street outside his own calf. There are too many cliffhangers to count. Could Liz have Rishi in her cabinet, knowing he knifed the last PM? She offered him a job on live TV, and yet he didn't offer one back. Doom, doom, doo -doo 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 -doo. Yet, if Rishi wins the contest to be the next head of the Downing Street Residents Association, will he keep Liz on as Foreign Secretary, where she's done such a fine job of positioning herself as the next PM? And if he does, how will she ever find a better hat? Cue look of horror and roll credits. And will we ever find out who played the role of Downing Street's Mrs Mangle, peeping out of the number 11 curtains at the neighbour's wine and cheese lockdown party? Has anyone ever seen Nadine Dorries and Bouncer in the same room at the same time? And can the Northern lad from £45,000 a year Winchester College ever overcome his lack of privilege? Or will he be able to win the love and help of downtrodden, power-suited career politician, plain Jane super brain dead? If you think about it, politics has all the best plot lines. Brain tumours, plane crashes, hissy fits, financial chicanery and occasional explosions. The current season even has the possibility of Boris Johnson either coming back from the dead or living as a tramp, forced to beg for a bed while also making thousands of pounds a month letting out his multiple properties to private tenants. If we're being honest, Liz has more in common with the large clip-on earrings and shoulder pads of Gail Robinson than she does the know-how and lovability of pocket-sized mechanic Charlene. And Rishi may share a dentist with Scott, but has neither the luck, mullet or charm. It's easy to picture him scowling in a leather jacket and playing moodily with chains, though, like Paul Robinson in search of a pop career, and about as believable. But like Paul and Gail, could these two ever make their marriage of convenience work? Can they convince their neighbours and colleagues theirs is a true union of collective cabinet responsibility? Or will they end up on opposite sides of the street, scheming against one another? Perhaps at the next hustings, one of them will crack and say, I love you, you idiot. 
when politics has become a soap, you know you're in trouble. And soap is all the Tories have left. Drama, personalities, events, and no big ideas since 1987. The only question is when, not if, they get decommissioned.